This is The Planted Runner. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik. It's inevitable. At some point in your running, you're going to get stuck. It might be a performance plateau where you just can't seem to get better. Or it could be a motivation issue when you can't seem to get out the door for a run when you used to love it so much. Or it could be a moment in a race or a workout where you're stuck in your head and you can't seem to will your legs to do what you want. It might seem like it's a physical limitation that you aren't fit enough or young enough, but more often it's mental. Is there a way to get unstuck in all these situations? Let's find out. Welcome to The Planted Runner. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and my mission is to help you improve your running, your mindset, and your life with science-backed training and plant-based nutrition. On today's show, I'm joined by Adam Alter, a psychologist at New York University and a New York Times best-selling author. His new book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, explores how to get unstuck when it matters most. When I found out that he's a runner, I wanted to know how his work, which is usually applied to business and creative pursuits, applies to running. You'll learn why we often get stuck as runners, especially in the middle, why our obsession with round numbers and data can actually be a good thing, and how to work with our natural anxiety with perfectionism and on race day. This discussion was an absolute treat for me because I'm just fascinated with how we can apply principles from psychology to become better runners today. Mental strength is a pillar of good running, and I'm always learning more so I can share with you. If you need more help running your best or want to know the basics of plant-based nutrition, you can order my book, The Planted Runner, Running Your Best with Plant-Based Nutrition, wherever you get books or request a copy from your local library. Or you can enter to win a copy for free just by writing an Apple Podcast review. I choose a new winner every month. Before I get into the conversation, I wanted to ask you if you have a plan to keep your running and fitness on track this fall. You know, after the big race is over and the shorter days and colder temperatures set in. And of course, during all the holiday drama. Instead of relying on motivation or going at it alone, come join an amazing group of runners just like you on my PR team. It's a virtual running team and so much more. You'll get a truly custom plan for all your running, strength, mobility, mental strength workouts, and more, all based on your fitness goals and lifestyle. You'll get all your questions answered by me and our super supportive team, in a private online running community. And the coolest part is that you get access to my exclusive weekly private podcast just for the team. I answer questions on the show, give training advice specific to you and the rest of the team, and you can even stay anonymous if that's more your style. It's really the sweet spot between just getting a DIY plan and full-on private coaching, even though you'll get lots of individual attention if you want it, all for as low as $75 a month. It is the perfect way to stick to your goals for the rest of the year and beyond. Not to mention, it's a ton of fun. 
Team spots are limited, so sign up today at theplantedrunner.com slash group. That's theplantedrunner.com slash group. And now here's my conversation with Adam Alter. Welcome to The Planted Runner, Adam. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. So I I brought you on because we are here to talk about how to get unstuck in our life and in running. And you got unstuck at a point in your life by training and running a marathon. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so I was I was 29. I had this insight. A friend of mine were doing some research. A friend of mine and I were doing some research, and we were what we we sort of figured that as we were approaching the end of a decade in in life. So when you're 29, 39, 49, and 59, that it might be a time when we kind of zoom back and figure out whether our lives are going the way we'd like them to. And at 29, I just made a very big decision to stay in the U.S. I was thinking about going back to Australia, where I was from, and I decided to stay in the U.S. I started a new job. I left behind a lot of friends at a place that I'd been before. And so I felt in this sort of weird no man's land. And as I was looking down at, at the prospect of turning 30, I felt this strange sense of stuckness and, and that I had to do something kind of momentous and big to, to propel myself forward. And for me, that, that happened to be signing up for the New York City Marathon, which was the first marathon I'd run. Wow, that's and a so big spent, one to start off with. <laughs> it was a big one to start off with. I wanted it to be a big event because I wasn't sure if I would ever do a second one. And uh, I wanted it to be momentous and I wanted it to be one that, with a lot of celebration, which is what the New York City Marathon is all about, obviously. Um, and so I, didn't, I wasn't hoping for a particular time or anything like that, but I, I was very motivated for that five or six months as I was training and I felt it really did unstick me in, in quite a profound way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people take up marathoning as sort of an answer to some kind of midlife crisis. You know, we, we don't necessarily like our jobs. We have little kids. We're in a marriage. We have so much to do. So let's add on hours and hours of marathon training. <laughs> right. Exactly. Make, <laughs> makes total sense. Yeah. So how, I mean, so can, do you have any insight on the process? Obviously it helped you make a decision, right? Yeah, so the theory is that whether it's a midlife crisis or whether it's these end of decade crises, which was the focus of the research project that I was working on at the time, you 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 sort of you're trying to get a sense of whether life is going the way you'd like it to be going. And so you're running a little audit, and it's very subjective. And there are a few little cues or signals that tell us things are going well. Do you have the social relationships you'd like? I was single at the time, so I didn't have a particularly strong social network. Do you have, uh, are you where you'd like to be career-wise? Are you moving forward in a way that feels productive? Um, and in, in the case of the marathon, are there goals that you have that are meaningful to you that propel you forward? And so that was the thing that was most in my control and I think is most in people's control. I think one of the things we do when we train for marathons or other events is we become very structured about them, most mm-hmm. of us. You know, And that structure is, I think, quite grounding and it, it gives us something to, to hang on to when things feel like they're laden with uncertainty or when we're not sure that we're moving in a direction we'd like. And so if you're someone who says, I'm going to run Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, these are my rest days, this is how far I'm going to run, this is what I'm going to eat, that, that structure for a lot of people who run marathons, and I think there's a personality type there as well, that structure I think is really reassuring and makes it feel like you are adhering to some sort of uh, schedule that makes it feel like you're predictably moving in a direction that's that's productive for you, that works for you. 
Absolutely. I think a lot of people listening are going to say, raise their hands and say, yeah, that's me. That's me. Right. I love that. Well, I, I, there's so many things that I want to kind of pick apart here. The first thing is about the round number thing. You know, there's a couple of things as runners, type A stereotype runners will do, and it has to do with round numbers. And it really honestly makes no sense, or maybe it does make sense. I don't know. You tell yeah. me, you know, so we um, want that, that round number time, whether it's 20 minutes in the 5k, three hours, hours or four hours or even five hours in the marathon. We want that round number. We even run around in circles in our driveway just so our watch has that even number. So first of all, why do we do this? And are there any pros to doing this? I'm so guilty of it. I just did it now, <laughs> actually. I got, I got back from a run about an hour ago and I hit exactly 10. So, and it was essential. Like I couldn't stop. I was walking up and down the driveway doing exactly what you just described. Yeah. Knowing as a researcher who studies this stuff, how, how it's, it's not like a major source of, of concern, but it, it's obviously not rational, right? The difference right. between running 9.98 and 10.02 versus 10.00, it's trivial. It doesn't change anything physiologically. It shouldn't change anything psychologically, but humans are very sensitive to these round numbers. They function as goals for us as default goals. So, you know, I, what I think is healthiest is not to pay attention to that. It's to pay attention to your body and the, the duration of the run that makes sense to you. But because everything about running, a lot about running is about structure. It's about a certain cadence. It's a certain number of steps. It's a certain pace. It's a certain zone level or, you know, everyone has different ways of describing the way they run. But but all of it is is governed to a large extent by something that is structured. And I think the arch version of structured is to say, I will keep going until I hit that round whole number. And it feels like there's a sort of binary between not achieving the goal, whatever it is, whether it's six miles or eight miles or 10 miles and achieving it. And once you achieve it, you put it behind you and you move forward. Now, in my case, this is obviously everyone's different. In my case, the reason I run to those round numbers is because I'm, I keep a log of how far I've run. And it's so much easier to calculate the arithmetic when I don't have 0 0.07, 0 0.02. <laughs> So it's a silly reason, but I, I'm really a slave to those numbers. Absolutely. I think many people are. I mean, yeah. it's great to check the box. It feels good. We get, I don't, I don't know if it's dopamine. I don't know what it is, but when we check the box, we're just like, we did a good job for today yeah. and we can move on. But if we don't get those round numbers, it can be, it, I mean, it can be irritating on the low end, but it can be devastating on the other end. I mean, right. my big dream goal was to break three hours in the marathon I got my second to last marathon, three hours and 29 seconds. It was the oh, worst. Wow. It was yeah. the worst. Yeah. And why? I ran a three-hour marathon. That box should have been ticked, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. I had to run another one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. We, a lot of us have been there. And and on a certain level, I think persevering through that and, and accepting that, that you were 23 seconds away or however far away from, from a particular goal, I think is a really healthy thing to grapple with. I think it's a, it's a form of hardship that's quite productive for us. Wow. So you should run 9.99 miles every now and then and grapple with the, the complexity of that, of what it feels like not to quite reach that goal. Or you should run, if your aim is to run a tempo at seven, seven minute pace, run 702s and see what that feels like. You're not Ooh. quite reaching the goal that you've set, but I think there's something, something very, adaptive about being okay with that and recognizing that in the end, did it make a huge difference? Not at all. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I really like yeah. that. So, you know, one of the beautiful things about running is that for the most part, you do the work and you get better for yeah. a while. 
And then inevitably, it happens to everyone, you get stuck. You know, there's marathoners that let's say they're trying to qualify for Boston, for example, they just try and try and try and year after year after year and don't seem to reach that goal, whatever the goal is they've set for themselves. So first of all, is getting stuck inevitable? And if it is, then what's the first step of breaking that plateau? Yeah. So one question is, is it inevitable? The other one is, is it ubiquitous? Does it happen to everyone? Yeah. My my experience is that it happens to everyone. I don't know that it's inevitable. I think the fact that it happens to everyone means that perhaps we're not all, well, none of us is really adaptive and doing exactly the right thing to, to not get into that situation. And I think one of the reasons is that the, the typical trajectory is when you start something new, when you start running from having not been a runner, or when you start any new pursuit, there's this very rapid period of development. Sometimes it takes a little while to get there, but then you hit that sweet spot and then you, you improve pretty dramatically. And that, that happens to runners. With runners, it's a few months. Your, your frame, your skeleton starts getting better about the act of running and suddenly you feel like it doesn't hurt every time you move. And then mm -hmm. suddenly you start going faster and your, your cardio system keeps up and so on. But then if you do the same thing over and over again, if you have a sort of a rudimentary training system that you keep applying day after day after day, Eventually, we reach what is known as a plateau, and that is almost inevitable. If you keep doing the same thing, whether you're training your muscles, training your cardio system, you're running, it, it actually it can even intellectual pursuits. If you're learning a language, mm. the same thing happens that unless you change things a little bit, you, you throw a cat amongst the pigeons, <laughs> you, you, you just find that eventually that what used to bring you great returns and great rewards just stops doing that. And that is, that is a very, very robust phenomenon across lots of human pursuits. Right. So, you know, we've got to change things up, you know, there's, there's so many runners who fall in love with the marathon, for example, and they run marathon after marathon after marathon, you know, one a month, you know, there's the mar marathon maniacs. And honestly, I say, if it brings you joy, more power to you, go for it. But then right. they ask me, hey, Coach Claire, why am I not getting faster? Yeah. 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 And it's because I mean, they don't I mix it up. Exactly. And not mixing it up. And I think also that sounds like the kind of person, not everyone who runs a marathon once a month is like this, but I think a lot of those people are incredibly driven. And even on slow days, they struggle to stay slow. They're not running those slower miles that they need to run. Um, mm. It sounds like that's a pretty intense training regime that would require, that would be required to get you to run a marathon once a month. So, I mean, you're, you're the coach, you know, better than I do, but my sense is that when I run too hard, I also end up running slowly and my body breaks down pretty fast. Mm -hmm. so that that's part of it as well. I think knowing, knowing when to be very, very on and also when to be off and off often means completely off and you need yeah. those periods too. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears to a different kind of getting stuck. You um, wrote about in your book, Anatomy of a Breakthrough, you wrote about this phenomenon about getting stuck in the middle and you used a bunch of different examples. But as soon as I heard that, what I was thinking of was intervals. So let's say mm -hmm. we're going out, we're on the track and we're doing, I don't know, 10, 400 meter repeats, something like that. The first ones come in blazing hot and then the last ones come in really, really good. But something happens in the middle. What's yeah. going on? Yeah, that's, that's very common. I hadn't thought about interval running, but I did an interval workout on Monday two days ago, and um, it, was, it was exactly like that. I had a dip in – it was a 10 by 4, and uh, my, my 
maybe fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh intervals were the slowest. And I often see that little U-shaped pattern, that little valley in the middle. And that's, that's incredibly common. I think a lot of people run that sort of, that sort of uh, pattern. And what I think what happens is at the beginning when you first start doing something, first of all, physiologically, if it's something that exhausts you, you have more energy. So you feel a bit stronger. Those first couple of reps, you've still got everything in the tank. And so that that is one thing that propels you forward. But also you have a psychological force behind you. There's the motivation that comes from starting something fresh, being energized, getting that positive feedback because your body's still performing really well. What happens at the end is obviously you can see the end is in sight. And so that's motivating. It draws you on. It's like a magnet that pulls you towards that 10th rep, that 10th interval. And then obviously you're, you're done. And that's, yeah, that's it's a almost good feeling. over. It's <laughs> almost <laughs> over. That's a good feeling. Yeah. So, so that's going on at the end. And so there are these two separate processes that make you perform better at the beginning and the end. But those processes don't exist in the middle. What happens is you're sort of a C. It's like you, the, the example that I use in the book is imagine sailing from New York to Southampton. And you're in the Atlantic Ocean for this big chunk of time in the middle where you don't have any landmarks that say, hey, you're getting very close to the end and you can't see where you've come from. And so it just, time just passes. And there's something about that in the middle of an interval run or, or really a long run or any kind of run. Those, that middle bit, it just, it doesn't feel like the, the progress is as tangible or you can really latch onto it as easily. You can't perceive it. And I think that's demotivating. You always want to feel mm. like you can see what the process, the progress is and not just step to step and step by step, but also that sense that you're really moving closer to some goal. And when you're still miles away or at a number of intervals away, it, it's hard to get that sense. So knowing that, what do we do to prevent it? Obviously, you're the expert and this just happened to you on Monday. So yeah. I don't have a lot of hope. <laughs> it's funny because that's another case of what I said earlier, which is that I, I like to inhabit that, that process and the difficulty of that. Like I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that dip in the middle because mm. everything, if you, if you ever do race or if you ever run a long run, there will be a middle. There's no way around the middle. To some, to, you know, to some extent, you're going to have to grapple with it. What you can do, though, is if you really feel that it's demotivating, that's when you start breaking, breaking your big goal into sub-chunks or sub-goals. And I think this is a very effective technique. And so one thing you can do is um, if you think about it, writing a book as 100,000 words of writing, you know, the, the middle is big. You know, it's mm -hmm. thousands and thousands and thousands of words, but that's why we break the goal into chapters or into sub goals of a hundred of a thousand words instead of a big hundred thousand word goal. And so when you, when you make the goal bite-sized and small enough, the middle shrinks, it's the beginning uh -huh. and the end. And there's really no middle. There's not enough room for a middle. And so what, what does that mean in running? I think what it means is obviously there's a difference between a 10 by 400 and, you know, two set two by 400, five times. But if you can think of it that way, you know, there's an on and an off, an on and an off, an on and an off. So maybe you run one 400 at 80% and the next one at 60%. And that's that's a sub goal. So, mm. and then you do that five times. Then you've got five sub goals instead of 10 by 400. You've got five right. by two by 400. So it's all about the chunking and the way you think about it. And And one thing that I always find really helps me is when I'm really demotivated, I play these games where I change things up regularly enough that I'm always focused on that individual little rep. And it could be something like for the next minute, I'm going to run at this pace and I'm going to increase the pace by 10 seconds a mile for each of the next 10 minutes. And then I'm going to dial it back down. I'll do a little pyramid. Suddenly 10, 20 minutes have passed. I didn't even realize because I was so focused on those tiny goals. There was no time for a middle because every goal is only a minute long. 
So, so shrinking the goals is a really, really effective way to eradicate that, that, that uh, dip in the middle. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And it's like, there seems to be sometimes a push and pull between those who say you should distract yourself by any means possible to break down the goal or think of something besides the pain you're feeling. And then there's other people who say, no, you should be absolutely super, super present, which is obviously there's a limited capacity for being present and being present sometimes hurts. (laughs) hurts. <laughs> it does. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what do you say about the push? I mean, use all the tools necessary. Right. Well, I think it depends what you're trying to train, right? If you're trying to train physiologically and you care about cardio and you want to get your time in, then, you know, distraction is great. Distract yourself, do whatever you need to do to get through the workout. If it means running a certain pace for a certain number of minutes or miles, then do that. If what you're trying to train is race smarts, or you're trying to train your mind as much as your body, or you're trying to train yourself to withstand pain, the pain of running, which sometimes arises, then be present, inhabit the space where it's painful and Mm. sit there and deal with it and say, hey, the next 10 minutes are going to really hurt. But then at the the end of those 10 minutes, I'm going to look back on them and say, that made me stronger. And the next time I'm in a race or the next time I'm running a hard tempo run or an interval run, I can draw on what I experienced there. I know that I'm the kind of person who can push through that 10-minute period of pain, so why can't I do it next time? Well, Mm -hmm. I can, but you have to do it a few times. You have to go through that period of hardship and inhabit it for for yourself to to sort of of show yourself that you can do it. And so I think there's some some value in, in not trying to distract yourself too much if you're trying to train your mind as well. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashion You. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. When you're a busy runner, it's not easy to get in all the running and training you need. On top of that, planning and preparing all the nutritious meals and snacks required to fuel you as an athlete can become an extra burden. So make it simpler on yourself and just make a shake after your workouts with the highest quality plant-based protein powder you can buy, Nurify by Prevenix. But don't just take my word for it. I recommend Nurify to all my athletes and here's what Julietta had to say about it. It's been a month since I bought Nurify and I'm super satisfied. This protein powder is my way to go after every run, especially those days when I cannot have breakfast immediately after my workout, I use Nurify. 
no GI issues, and it keeps me full until my breakfast. Highly recommended. So if you are ready to finally and deliciously hit your protein numbers, head to Prevenex.com and use my code PR15 for 15% off your entire order. That's Prevenex.com, code PR15. There's kind of two types of runners, you know, like you said, some are just trying to do it for health and fitness while other people prefer to, you know, be competitive and race. Um, And, you know, there's an obvious uh, attraction to racing, you know, you you do something better you've never done before. But, you know, a lot of people really just, oh, I want to run for health and fitness. Why is that as a goal so much harder? It's funny. I I don't want to speak too much about my personal experience um, with this, but I train like I'm uh, like I'm trying to run a race, and then I don't race. So <laughs> it's a really weird thing. Like I I have the same training regimen that I would use if I were training for a half marathon. So I'll run thirty to fifty miles a week, some long runs, some tempo, some interval, a little bit of everything. But I don't race um, because I like the combination of. I don't love racing. Racing kind of take for me personally, just the way I run, I like the intrinsic experience of running. And so it takes some of the joy out for me. I, I used to race more and I don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. But if I didn't have the training regimen that's attached to racing, like if I didn't have the structure of that, I think it would be really hard for me to get out some days and actually do the workout. So I think that's part of what it is. I think if you don't have some sort of structure to your workout, it's easy to it's easy to say no when you're on the balance, when you're sort of yeah. unsure about whether you're going to do it. And so that, that, that structure for me is really helpful. And also the, the variation in, in what I do means that I don't often get bored. I look forward to the long run, the tempo, the interval, the whatever runs I'm doing. And for me, and this is true not just about running, it's true about my professional life. It's true about pretty much everything I do. I need variety. I get mm-hmm. bored really fast. I satiate on things. I need to eat different food. I need to do different <laughs> things. I need to be in different places. And so that's true for my running as well. And I think people who just kind of run to run and do the same thing over a period of a month, maybe it's fine, but over years and years and years, it's going to get tough to do. So yeah. you've got to, you've got to mix it up. Yeah. So what's, but so what's the carrot for you then with no, no racing, just this is what I do. I have a structure and I just do it. Because it's on my calendar? It's a good question. I've learned something weird about myself, which is that if I do the same workout with the view to running a race, it just loses the joy. I lose the joy. Mm. I don't enjoy it anymore. Whereas I could do the very same workout and say, what's the purpose of this? It's just because I feel great doing it and then I feel great afterwards. That's That works really well. But the minute I attach it to some sort of objective goal, it just doesn't work for me. So I still do my 10 mile run and I have to hit 10.00. I'm still a slave to the numbers. I have to run my sub seven or sub eight or whatever it is. But, but I don't, I don't have a, a like an, an official kind of race at the end of it. And yeah. I, I, I experimented with this last year. I ran a couple of races and it just did not, it didn't sit well with me. The training didn't sit well. And then the race itself, I didn't enjoy. Yeah. But, you know, you learn something about yourself. And I think that sort of experimentation, which is a theme in my book, is a big part of what, what makes a runner enjoy running. Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to be super competitive and I don't race anymore either. So yeah. I can completely, completely understand. Um, but, you know, one thing about running is, you know, we love the data. We, you know, you want to run your sub eight, sub seven, whatever it is. You want to run your 10 miles. It's it's a pass fail. You either do it or you don't do it. 
And that can be wonderfully motivating, or it can also be the opposite, completely devastating. And I would say one of the worst things that a runner who's competitive and loves to race can go through is a DNF, did not finish. Um, Do you have any advice for those who have experienced this? Like, how do you get over that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, again, it's it's uh, it's inevitable, and especially as you run longer races, DNFs are par for the course. You know, there are a lot of races as they get into ultra territory where most people don't finish, and even the best, the very best runners, the the fastest, best men and women, a lot of them don't finish a lot of their their races, even if they're at the, at the very peak of what they do. And so, to see it as not a as not a binary situation, but as something that's more continuous is I think very useful. And so what a lot of people will do, and and a lot of the the fitness watches prompt you to do this, I know Mike Garman does, is it'll say, all right, what was your effort level from one to 10? What was your perceived effort? And the, the nice thing about that is you finish the race or the run, whether you completed what you were intending to complete or not, it turns it into a continuous rather than a binary assessment of what you just did. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I don't always pay that much attention to it, but I think if I was someone who felt that I didn't like the binary nature of it all, I would have a log. And in my log, I would say about every race or run, is it where is it from one to 10? Where one is, it really didn't go the way I wanted at all, to 10 is it, it went perfectly. I couldn't have imagined a better situation. I hit a PR or something like that. And the nice thing about that is it allows you to bounce around a little bit more and it recognizes a truth about what it is to be human, which is that some days you wake up, you don't run that well. And some days you aren't as creative as you'd like to be and work doesn't go the way you'd like. And it's not binary. We don't, we aren't binary creatures. We're not just on and then off. And so that's going to be true about running just as much as it's true about everything else. And so I think capturing that in, in a continuous fashion is a more faithful representation of what it means to do the thing. And I've heard people like Courtney DeWalter and um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, Killian Jornet might have said the same thing. Like the two of the best ultra runners have both said, uh, you know, there are days when it's a DNF, but it was a good DNF. Like it was a DNF that felt productive. And, right. and they are they're really sort of adaptive about seeing the DNF written there, but saying here are all the things I got out of that DNF that will make the next occasion better in some meaningful way. And I think that's what it is to say this was a DNF, but it was a four out of 10, not a one out of 10, right. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because if there are very, very good reasons not to finish a race, you know, injury, sickness, all sorts of things. And then you have the people that are like, no matter what, if I have to crawl on my fingers, I am finishing the race. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know. That doesn't sound super healthy to me. (laughs) Would you say? It's probably not. I mean, I think a lot of it's just personality type, but um, right. it's it's not. And obviously, what you you've got to think about what running means to you in a very abstract sense. Like, if you zoom back, running across the course of the lifespan, do you want to run for as many years, many healthy years as possible? Do you want to have this period of just incredible performance for several years where you're really at your peak? And maybe that really does mean pushing incredibly hard for a short period of time, training I don't know, hundred mile weeks, something crazy. Mm-hmm. Or, or really, is it something different from those two? Those are the two that come to mind for me. And for me, I know it's about running for as many years as possible, as happily and as healthily as possible. That means never crawling over the finish line. 
That, right. And for me, it means never having a finish line, <laughs> never having a race where I have that situation. But for people who do crawl over the finish line, you are obviously on, in some way hampering your ability to run the next day, the next week, the next month. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make that calculation. And if it's an important enough event, it's an important enough race to you, then maybe it's worth doing. But if that's always what you're doing, I'd say you're running in a suboptimal way for a lot of the time when you're recovering from those experiences. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem like the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, again, we have to say that a lot of runners are this sort of stereotypical type A personalities that Mm -hmm. just go, 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 go. And you have said in your book that we should be something called satisficers instead, which is an interesting word. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's, um, satisficing is, is an alternative to maximizing. So maximizing is where you want the very best of everything. And it's usually used in the context of decision making. So if I'm if I'm choosing which town to live in, who to marry, um, what kind of car to buy, which university to go to, all that, whether to have kids, those are really quite important decisions. Maybe the car less than the others, but some of those are very very important decisions. And so you want to maximize. You want the very best outcome, and you want to be very thoughtful about processing all the data you need to process to make the best decision. But then there are a lot of decisions we make where they're kind of borderline, and maybe the which car you buy for a lot of people fits in there. And those are decisions where you can satisfy. And satisficing is basically saying I'm satisfied sufficiently with this particular outcome that it may not be the very best of all outcomes, but I'm going to accept the first outcome that reaches the bar that I set. So in the context of a car, I'm not a car person, but I want a safe car. I have small kids and I I want them to be as safe as possible. So the first car we found that hit the right price point, had all the boxes checked. We were like done. And it took us two hours and my wife and I picked the car and we bought the car and that was it. That's satisficing. I know people who spend weeks and weeks and weeks looking for a car because to them, it's really, really important. Now in the context of running, there are runs where maybe you need to maximize. Like if you're running two marathons a year, it's really important that you you do the very best job you can. And maybe that means pushing yourself past the point where you're comfortable. I don't know. Mm -hmm depending on who you are. But if you're on a training run and you've got, say, 100 training runs a year or 200 training runs a year, depending on how much you run, satisficing a lot of the time is, is going to be good enough. And it's actually the best long-term decision, which is to say, hey, if I'm feeling at a, at a 70 today and I don't think I'm going to be able to run it at 100 today, that's okay. That's good enough for today. And so being able to distinguish between the occasions when you need to maximize, when you really need to push, and occasions when you say, this is good enough. Here's my hurdle. I'm over the hurdle. I don't need to be a mile over the hurdle. That's okay. And it's often in the service of some longer term goal, like preserving your time or energy for the next occasion mm-hmm. or for the long run. Yeah. And it's, it's valuable to be able to do that. That is a tough lesson to teach and to learn. You know, Very. when when is good enough good enough? When you, the whole point for some people is pushing yourself to see how good you can get. That it's it's paradoxical, and it also seems to be maybe anti-evolutionary because we're taught. I mean, we're never satisfied. There's always, you know, more food over there, more more things to hunt, more things to gather. You know, it yeah, seems yeah. like never being satisfied is actually something that biologically keeps us alive. It seems like it's wired in us to it, it always is. be searching. It, well, we are we are sort of goal oriented creatures. We really are achievement motivated. We like completing goals. You know, people will read books they find boring just to say they completed them, which <laughs> makes no sense. You only have so much time, and there are so many books to read. 
So I, I think that's true. We are sort of maladaptive as goal-seeking creatures. We go too far. Um, but I think another thing you can do is, again, it, this is about, I said before, one way to get rid of the middle is to bracket narrowly, but uh, you can do the opposite, which is to say, my goal is not to run this particular day, today's race or run or training run as fast as possible. My goal is to have a productive month of running. Mm. And so if you expand the goal and you change the scope of the goal, you make it a bigger thing, then part of having that that goal achieved of having a really good month of running is saying that two-thirds of my runs should be run at 50% power. That's mm -hmm. how I have a good month of running. And so on a particular day where I manage to run at 50% power for an hour, that's checking the box. It doesn't mean that on that day I had to show myself that I was the greatest runner of all time. It means saying that in the context of the bigger goal, which is the goal that really matters, was exactly how I should have run. And, and that, that was a lesson that took me forever to learn. I, when I ran in my 20s and early 30s, there was no, I, I could never learn that. I would get out, I'd start running, and I would say 99% of the time I ran faster than I intended to run and was more tired at the end of the run than I should have been. I'm much mm -hmm. better about that now. But I, it took probably 15, 20 years of running to get there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's the hardest lesson for any runner to learn is yeah. go slow on your easy days. I, I mean, it's easier to teach people to run fast than it is to teach them to run slow. I, I promise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So um, another thing that runners commonly experience is anxiety. I don't know if we're normally just an anxious people and we choose running or or if it's just something about the sport. Um, we get super anxious, whether it's on the starting line or even in uh, right before a workout. I had a runner that I coached once who made me hide his track workouts until an hour before because he didn't want to see it the night before because he would stay up all night ruminating about, you know, his 400 meters the next day or whatever it was. So can you talk a little bit about anxiety uh, with runners and more importantly, how to get rid of it? Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you think about what running is um, and the, the nature of, of running as a competition or as a pursuit, it's not surprising that there's a lot of anxiety bound up in it because there are very few things we do that have such rapid feedback for us. They tell us how we're performing down to the millisecond and you get performance feedback every time you do the thing. And so that's that's going to be a recipe for anxiety. So it will create anxiety as you become more competitive because either you do or you don't reach a certain level of proficiency. But I also think there's something about um, people who are anxious being attracted to running because it's a great outlet. It's a great way to expend that en that anxious energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's certainly true for me. Like I, if I don't run for a few days, I can feel the anxiety building. And that that I, I am a, naturally an anxious person, but I think even if I were not, that would be true to some extent. I think getting that energy out is really, really important. And so um, – for anyone who feels that sort of physical buildup of, of anxiety, it makes sense that they, they take to running as a, as a really sort of productive way to release that. Um, but, I, but I do think it's the nature of the competition. Like I think about a lot of other pursuits that are not quite so binary, not quite so data-based, data-driven. You get just that, that precise feedback all the time. And I think there's, there's a, less room for the same degree of consistent anxiety like this person who had the, the, the training anxiety. Like the fact that you get that even in training sessions is um, it makes total sense to me because I've experienced something like that. 
But I think that's that's because we are so focused on did I run the four hundreds at the seventy five splits and whatever. You know, mm-hmm. there's so there is so much that can go wrong. If you've got ten reps and you're looking at all the reps and you focus on all of them, there's a lot of room for that run not to go the way you'd like it to go. So I think there's a lot of room for for anxiety to be inspired. Yeah. So what do we do to help um, alleviate it? You know, so you're on the starting line of your marathon that you've trained for the past, I don't know, four or five months for, and you start feeling sick to your stomach, your heart starts pounding, you're sweating, and you're not mm-hmm. even moving. Is there a, a, an approach that we can use to kind of de-escalate that? Yeah, one of the approaches I like is, it's pretty intense, but it helps me, which is to say, what's the worst that can happen? Like, what if I start running and 10 steps into this marathon that I've been training for six months for, I roll my ankle and I'm done. What happens then? Like, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do the week after? Is there a backup plan? Is there another marathon I can run when my ankle heals? Uh, I'll still have a lot of cardio fitness. So I, can I capitalize on that? What's the worst case scenario? And I think inhabiting that worst case scenario is very valuable because it it often is not as bad as your abstract minds allow, mind allows you to imagine it will be. And so that's that's, I mean, the, the, I guess the, the worst version is not running 10 steps and then not finishing, but it's running 25 miles and not finishing. Yes. Like that. So think about that too, right? What, what, what do you get from that? What is the value of having run that 25 miles at race pace? And again, what, what is the worst case scenario? How are you going to deal with that? What is it going to mean to you? Can you run another one next week, next month, and so on? So I, I think it's really valuable to to do that, to to inhabit that that mind space because um, it it desensitizes you to to what seems like this abstract, vague, amorphous threat. And when you really look at it concretely, it's often not as big a deal as it seems like it's going to be. That that mm-hmm. always helps me. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, I love the concept uh, that you mentioned in the book that we should describe ourselves in nouns rather than in verbs. And mm-hmm. it's uh, you actually used a running example. So I was like, woohoo, um, <laughs> I'm a runner versus I run. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah, one is a description of something you do, and you can either be doing it or not doing it. And one is a sort of essential description of who you are. It's something about the the person you are. And so when you say, I am a runner, that is something that is true whether you're running, sitting, standing, jumping, sleeping, it doesn't matter what you're doing in any moment, you are in some essential way a runner, and that's a big part of your identity. So if you think about your identity as a circle and running as over here, for someone who says, I'm a runner, there is an overlap between the running circle and your identity. Whereas someone who says, I am running, that's true while you're running, but once you stop, you're no longer in the business of running. That circle is no longer overlapping with you. And I think to really feel a sense of ownership over a pursuit, something that you do, whether it's a goal or whether it's an activity that you do because you enjoy it, saying, I am this thing, and you know there's a day when you say, I'm a runner. You know, The first time you run, you don't say, I'm a runner. You say, I went for a run. But there's a day when you hit that sort of threshold and you say, now I am this kind of person. And it's a powerful moment, and I, I think it's an important moment to pay attention to, and I don't think people really do pay attention to it. Like I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of your listeners say, I'm a runner, but they, there was a day when they didn't say that yet, early on when they first started doing it. And so it's nice to think back on what that moment is when you transition from being just a person who sometimes moved one foot in front of the other rapidly and someone who is like, this is a thing that is essential to my being. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what the noun suggests. It suggests something quite fundamental about you. Yeah, I love it. Because there's so many people that are like, oh, well, I'm not a real runner. Or, oh, the real runners do this. Yeah. And, and these are people who are, you know, marathon runners, you know, right. maybe they aren't going to the Olympics, but they're a runner just as much as anyone else. And, oh, I'm, I'm not a real runner. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I think also a big thing in running is um, we do a lot of upward comparison. Oh, so yeah. instead of instead of looking around and saying, hey, here are all the people who are just like me or here are people who run not as far or not as fast or whatever, a lot of us, and again, this goes back to your comment that a lot of runners are quite competitive and anxious. A lot of us look upward. No matter how well you're doing in your training, there's always someone quicker, almost always. Uh, and so when you look around and you see those people who are quicker and they're running more miles than you, and now, of course, as much as I love Strava, all of that's in your face all the time. Like if you use one of those apps, I'm a big fan in general, but also every time I run, I, I'm proud of my run. And then I see 27 people have just run faster and further than I ran. Now you, you can take that personally, or maybe you don't have to, but we tend to look upward. Mm-hmm. Like we collect information that makes us seem not quite as proficient as we are. And so I think that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, I don't know if you saw the documentary Chimp Empire, but it's all about the chimpanzees and they are trying to, uh, you know, establish their place in the pack or if they're called packs, I'm not sure. And and yeah, it's you don't look at the people below you. No one wants to go backwards. You're always striving, always striving. And, you know, Strava is a big um, I don't know, it can be a motivator and it can be demotivating, too. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's my favorite social. If you can even think of it as a social network, it's by far my favorite. And I do get a lot of benefit from it. But I do occasionally notice that I'm spiraling down looking at all these other incredible runners. Yeah. Well, what do you do when you're just out there for your easy run, you know, at whatever your slow pace is and you're, you've got it, you feel like you have to title it something. Yes. Oh, just an easy day. You don't want people yeah. to think you're working hard or you got to hide that heart rate. <laughs> That's another thing I've started resisting actually is hiding stuff and, and oh, also good. retitling my runs and having the whole long explanation in the comment box where you say, yeah, you know, this was this kind of run. And like, you're always apologizing for your, yes. for the stats, which you yeah shouldn't be doing. I mean, again, that's another way that you undermine the intrinsic joy for the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I think I've got better at, and it partly it's because I'm just naturally slower than I used to be, is I really love going somewhere beautiful and running slow and long and just looking around and taking it all in. I didn't ever do that when I first started running for the first 20, 25 years of running. Um, and I did start running quite late. But over the last few years, I mean, that's where the joy comes from. And then mm. when the run goes up on Strava, it might be, you know, a two hour run. I didn't get very far, but maybe it's a trail. Maybe it's just somewhere coastal. It's beautiful. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really what pushes me on day to day when I'm running. Perfect. Well, I think that's a great place to kind of wrap this all up. Adam, where can listeners connect with you? Um, I, you know, I don't do a huge amount of social media. Um, I am occasionally, except Strava, Strava. you can find me on Strava. You can look at all my slow, short runs on Strava. Um, you can find me on Twitter slash X. Um, Adam Lee Alter is my handle. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably where I do most of my posting if I'm posting at all. Uh, and then if you just search for me, you'll find my homepage or my NYU page. My, my homepage is a professor and you can find all my info there. 
Fantastic. So the book is Anatomy of a Breakthrough, How to Get Unstuck When It Matters Most. Excellent book for everybody, but especially for runners, there's tons of great ideas to get you unstuck. Adam, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Claire. I enjoyed it. Since today's episode was all about mental strength for runners, it feels a little extra to do the Mental Strength Minute this week. I'll be back next week with a new one. Thank you for listening to The Planted Runner, part of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. Don't forget that you can win a copy of my book for leaving an Apple Podcast review, so be sure to write yours right after your run today. Reviews are the number one way to boost this show's reach, and it's a great way to tell me what you'd like to hear next, because I read every single one. Have a great run today. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.